Oh, Bretto. What's up, MP? Damo just called. Yeah? He thinks there's going to be 100,000 people at the Wellness Summit. Oh, again? He thinks we're bigger than Michael Jackson, the Rolling Stones and the Beatles all put together. Damien Christoph has gone completely mad. Did you know he's made eight tonnes of forage? What? <laughs> and now he wants you and I to help him get rid of it. Oh, Damo. So look, being the good friends that we are, we've asked him. You mean forced? Well, we've kind of twisted his arm to make him literally give his forage away to 100 lucky Wellness Summit attendees. So if you're ready to enrol for our signature two days of inspiration, education and empowerment and entertainment. What do you mean, MP? Australian Idol winner Wes Carr makes his Wellness Summit debut this year, Bretto. Wes Carr, you'll be guilty. So if you're ready to be entertained, head on over to thewellnesssummit.com and get four value bags of forage muesli or one bag each of paleo, muesli, bircher and porridge when you register. Now, all you need to do is register for this two-for-one special, bring a buddy, bring a friend, bring a family member or a colleague and then choose your forage selection, four muesli or four assorted and get four bags per attendee. That's eight bags per double pass. That's almost 250 bucks of forage for free when you register for the Wellness Summit on August 25-26 at the Collingwood Town Hall in Melbourne. That's 150 serves of breakfast. Almost six months of breakfast just for registering for the Wellness Summit. Well, it's first in best dressed. These 100 tickets are only available until June 18 or until sold out. All the details of this special offer, all the topics, featured speakers and more are over at thewellnesssummit.com. Thanks for making eight tons of forage, Damo. Welcome to Homebase Hope, all about autism, the show that invites you to think differently, inspires you to take a whole child approach, and most of all, instills hope when it comes to your child and autism. I'm your host, Rhiannon Crisp, from homebasehope.com.au. Let's get into it. Hi guys, and welcome back. Today we are going to be looking at autism a little bit differently. I truly believe there is so much more to autism than what we currently know, and I think it's really important that we remain curious and question current thinking. I also think we need to be open-minded when it comes to intervention approaches, and I couldn't think of anyone more knowledgeable on the topic of reframing our thinking about autism than Holly Bridges. Holly is an author, autism advocate, and therapist who works with people of all ages on the spectrum. Since writing her book, Reframe Your Thinking Around Autism, she has developed her acclaimed ART autism therapy and has traveled extensively sharing this new approach. Founded on the advances in neuroscience and our understanding of mind-body connections, ART seeks to change the narrative from one of what's wrong to how to grow and thrive. Welcome, Holly. Hello, thank you for having me. Uh, It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Now, on the show, we always start with the journey. And I'd absolutely love to start here with you today because you studied psychology, uh, but you've taken a little bit of a different approach in terms of how you work with your clients. So I'd love to hear a bit about your story and what led you to take uh, a different perspective. 
I studied psychology quite some time ago now, um, and I've always been fascinated with bodywork and natural healing, and so much of that stuff works, but we never quite know why or how and have, have a model for, um, for just what we're playing with in that arena. And then I came across autism. I, I, I've been working with people with um, learning disabilities and things like that and playing around with brain plasticity and if, if you can make the body comfortable, the brain works better, that sort of thing, and how the eyes interact. And then I, and then I met a family with autism um, and the, the, the dad and the kid had autism. He was about 15. And I really resonated with it and I saw myself in it so much. But having studied psychology, I went, well, I'll have a look at it, but nothing much added up. It, I, no one seems to know still what autism really is. We don't have a, a good grasp of it. And then it wasn't like a broken leg. It can come and it can go. You can function quite well in some respects and in other respects, you know, one more person comes into the room and you've dropped out again. And I was quite a lot a lot like that when I was young. And I, you know, I, so I went and investigated it and I... <laughs> found the polyvagal theory and I fell madly in love with it because it made sense of all of my prior knowledge and it just knits everything together. It bridges it beautifully. Um, and then I started finding, I found Annette Banyel and um, it made sense, those two things together. So I found some more studies and did the book because I did a workshop initially and these mums just went, thank you so much. We finally have hope. We usually leave these things feeling really, really down on ourselves and there's no there's no doors ever open. You can't look to the future happily in a sense. And so they said we have to have something to read. So I wrote the book. Um, and then and then I just wanted to see how how well I worked with people with autism. So I went and worked in autism services for a few years and I did support and coordination and a project and um, found I was really good at it. So I, but I saw there how how much when people feel safe they can learn, how much when they feel safe they grow, how much change there really is with autism. And it's like, why aren't we tapping into that better? And if you then go back with the polyvagal theory and play around with those ideas, um, you can you can start working with that whole notion of if someone's in a calm state, a parasympathetic state, you can um, help help their whole brain-body system operate at a higher function. So that's what I do. I work with people from 5 to 45, and they have all of these amazing changes, and especially the adults. I, I used to leave people's homes and pinch myself because they changed so much in such a short space of time. It was actually really outside what we expect to happen, like ever. Um, you know, people would be articulating a really high order level and their families would go, we just never expected to see this person. So I don't know, I've just followed my piece of string and, and played around with it and it's got, I love it. I couldn't do anything else now. Yeah, I think your perspective is very interesting and um, on your website you go through a lot of different uh, theories that are incorporated in your technique and your program um, and that's what I want to dive into today. But before we get into that, I just wanted to talk about your book. So the title of your book is Reframe, Reframing Your Thinking About 
around autism. And I suppose the obvious question is, what do you mean when you say that we need to reframe our thinking around autism? What what does that mean? What is our current thinking? What do we think autism is now? And how do we need to reframe it? Our current thinking very much bases one way or another around the brain and it being a problem with the brain or a neurodivergence. Um, but there's so many physical aspects to autism. People have all these comorbid issues and we go, oh, that's just autism. But it, it's a whole body experience and the whole body goes into shutdown and the whole body is soothed by sensory things. So we really need to broaden and expand our understanding. And again, like I said, it's not like a broken leg. It's like it's not like there's a part of the brain broken. It, the whole system sort of moves around. Um so we need to reframe it in terms of um, widening our definition to include the body, and we haven't had a model for that that works. And it's why the polyvagal theory for me is so useful, because it's a systems theory rather than a gene or a, you know, we, we can't pinpoint it so specifically, and I think it's because it's a systems issue. Um, we, we just haven't been sophisticated yet in understanding the mechanism between the brain and the body so it's a bit beyond most people to think that way. And I'm really good at it for some reason, and then I make a Dr. Zeus version of it. Um, but it's simple for people. So when I do workshops, sorry, it's a bit long-winded, but I, I, I do this diagram and I, I talk, you know, I talk with adults on the spectrum and mums and stuff, and they just go, oh, that makes so much sense. And it's not like parents don't know a lot. They're more well-read than the therapists half the time. They, they're really involved and and know so much and so I think all I'm doing is actually just putting everything together for them and even speech therapists will go oh we learn all of this stuff at uni but no one's ever put it together quite like this and then it just enables this this leap in um in understanding but it is a shift in cognition and we've been stuck in that very medically oriented brain deficit kind of thing and we don't get very far with that model Mm, no, I totally agree. I think we do need to be very open-minded um, when it comes to our perspective of autism and what we think autism actually is. Um, autism, you know, it's so complex and it's so broad that we need to be flexible in our approaches um, because we know, you know, the spectrum's so broad, so what works for one child isn't necessarily going to work for another child. You know, we can have children that are polar opposites, Um so, yeah, I think it's very important to be open-minded about the approaches. You're talking a lot about the polyvagal theory. Now, this might sound a bit scary to parents. You know, it's um, a big <laughs> word. What what does it mean when you talk about the polyvagal theory? You can get really complicated if you feel like it, and people do, but I don't see the point. I think if you, in a nutshell, the body goes into a, it, it, it has a learnt response. Um, oh, I had this perfectly. I say this all the time. The body has a learnt response to pain and fear and can go into an involuntary shutdown as a safety mechanism. Full stop. We have three, um, three ways to keep ourselves safe um, as mammals, and all mammals do this. Human beings are just, you know, um, 
more advanced on top of that. But 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 as creatures, we we can socially engage to keep ourselves safe. So we smile at people, we make eye contact, we soothe them, we can bring them down. That's our first threat response. If that doesn't work, we can go into flight, fight, or freeze. So our our physiology will start going into a more hyper state, but we can still think our way to choose one of those three options more or less, depending on who you are and and all your learning and what's happening. If that doesn't work, we can go into the third choice. And this one is the one that Porges, Dr. Porges, who's the the creator of the polyvagal theory, he's an American neurobiologist and brilliant. Um, His point is we've missed this last one because we think flight, fight and freeze. Freeze is a, it's actually a bit of a choice to sort of stop still and, and um, you play dead sort of but there's another one where your body will actually drop you out in order to keep you safe like a like a deer or a rabbit in a headlights or something it will turn you off in order to keep you safe so there was there was a story I listened to once with a guy in a safari park and a lion came into his car and he survived uh, but he said, I could feel the mane on my breath. I could feel the, the my face. I could feel the breath on my face. But I couldn't blink and I couldn't swallow and I couldn't move a muscle and I couldn't, there was no choice. Um, and I had to wait till the lion went away. And it's that our body actually has this function. And we, we use all three depending on what's happening. And we sort of learn with the first two how to play around with them. Um, but essentially we're quite beholden to our body. Um, and so that is the whole um, interplay. If you start looking at it with autism, we are very beholden to our body. It's very much people say, I'm locked in a body that doesn't work for me. You get these these guys who suddenly um, would slowly learn to type when they haven't been able to articulate for their whole lives and people you know people think often that they don't know anything or they're stupid or they're you know whatever but when they start typing they're hugely emotionally intelligent they're savvy they've noticed everything that's been going on um but their body's been in a lockdown state because in in and it's a continuum it's not one or the other it's just you can slide down and and go into a depressed state in order to keep you safe so the polyvagal theory is about safety and what the body will do in different states. Mm. So are you saying that children with autism are in this lockdown state or they can be very frequently in this lockdown state, which is um, you know, attributable to the behaviours that we're seeing? Very, it's a very good theory. <laughs> so, yeah, and I, I see it because I see so much change and I, I think it explains the change. Again, it's not like a broken leg. It moves up and down. So um, if, you, if you were born in a fairly locked down state, in a flight and fight state even, and your whole body is actually revved 24 hours a day, you, your, your system is quite uncomfortable um, your eyes are quite locked because when we go into a flight or fight state, our eyes are actually go quite rigid, our hearing shifts. We can't listen to all sorts of other tones because we're very focused on safety. But the body is, it's actually not a choice. We, we're kind of, if that's your normal, because you were born like that, how do you know to be anything else unless someone shows you in a sort of physiological way? And so it's, it's kind of that. And yes, the, the behaviors, if you, 
how do you make eye contact comfortably in that state? Your eyes actually aren't physiologically in the right place. You, when you're in a parasympathetic state, a calm state, your eyes are much more fluid and open and you can allow the world in. But if you've never experienced that, you can't do it. So what I do with my work is I, um, I go kind of five steps backwards from where most people work and I just teach the person how to be in a parasympathetic state, what that feels like because they've never really felt it and it is again a continuum. Some people have been very locked down and they've never spoken. Some people um, have but, you know, like I work with a guy with pandas and he was talking when he was younger, he's in his 20s now, but he got an infection, a staph infection and he can't now talk very much at all and can't wear clothes and he's very distressed physically all the time. Um, but, but we slowly start working to wake the body up in various ways for what suits the person and what makes sense to them. Um, things start to happen. So people start talking. I, you know, I've got one mum on one of my videos that just went, you know, we had one session and then he was, we went to the Christmas parade and he was talking in whole sentences and it was one session. And it's not a miracle. It's just if you actually look at the physiology of what the vagus nerve will do, which is the polyvagal theory, it, it will... Like with that lion thing, it switches off functions that are unnecessary to keep you safe. So if you make the body feel safe again and you you play games and do fun stuff with the person so that they engage, all of that almost, you'd like I call it your social software, it all starts coming back online. And as long as you don't make a big deal of it, they go, oh, I'll just start using that now and kind of just get on. It's, it's a fascinating thing to play with. That just makes so much sense. It really does that children are living in this, you know, um, this state that potentially they were born with and they can't get out of. And if you teach them that they're safe and show them how to be safe, then, um, yeah, they can access higher level cognitive functions, um, you know, like language and communication and um, be able to play and, and do things that other kids their age are doing. And you can't intellectually teach someone how to feel safe. So that's what we do often with our therapies when we're starting to understand the polyvagal theory and we go, well, your body's gone into flight or fight and we teach people how to think themselves out of it. But it's impossible because they don't know that state yet. So all you have to do is actually go back first and teach them that at a physiological level that makes sense to them. And then, yes, all of this other stuff starts to wake up. So our when we're in a flight or fight state or an immobilized state, our connection to our frontal lobe gets really quite depressed. And, you know, that's all executive functioning and things like this. Connection to the cerebellum changes enormously, which is movement and posture. And, you know, you're, you're in a very different vestibular state, hearing and balance, everything, when you are in a flight or fight state to a parasympathetic state. So, yeah, it's all connected, the brain and the body all of the time. It's And so you can be really intellectual about all of that or you can just remember that everyone's got a body and so you teach them what's happening in their body and they have a sophistication about that and, and an intelligence. So with each person you just start weaving that for where they're at. Um, so there's not a really one size fits all and that's why I call it art as much as anything my program because 
um, it's very artful how you play with someone. It's, it, it never looks the same for any person in a sense. It has to, because you have to woo people. You have to get them curious. You, they're a bit jaded often. I have 17-year-olds. I've just had a 17-year-old, a 19-year-old come from Melbourne and he for for a week intensive and he we initially did a Skype and it was hard to even get him to do that because he's he's done all of the therapies and and everything and he was really jaded and he didn't have any faith anymore that anything was going to be any different doing a double degree you know like bright everyone's bright but um he it made sense to him like you just said he went oh my god that makes perfect sense and then i went let me show you because I've got this great exercise that takes about 15, 20 minutes, but it's like you've been meditating. It really, really relaxes you and clears your mind. So I, I get the, um, I get the mums to role model. So I got the mum to do the exercise, so he can watch and kind of um, feel safe learning what what I'm trying to do. And often the mums look about 10 years younger because it relaxes you so much. It's really nice um, that he, he just, he really wanted to do it after that. So then he did it too. And then he, he was like, great, I'm in. So he came for a week um, and we had this wonderful week together and he left so different and so happy. Um, and it's, it's kind of astounding in a funny way because we just don't really see this very much. I had a text last night from a mum of a five-year-old and we've had three sessions and she just went, oh, my God, he's playing in the front yard. I was quite emotional last night. He's playing in the front yard and kicking the ball around. He's never done that. So it, it, these people just start to wake up slowly but surely and we're not teaching them how to kick a ball or ask how someone's day is and care about someone other than themselves. They just actually can let the world in enough because their body's in a in a state to be able to allow it and then their mind follows it it sounds amazing um i'm really curious how you because obviously you're saying a lot of therapists operate from this intellectual model where they're we're teaching certain behaviors and we're teaching what to do how do we operate from um teaching from a physiological model like you're talking about what what does it actually look like i'm trying to get a vision in my head what you might be doing in a session could you give us any examples i can but i i guess what i'll do is come right back again and say we have to reframe our thinking around autism because until you do that until you actually unlearn everything you've learned we are so inculcated to outcomes proving that we're doing the right thing, making, you know, with all our schooling and everything and everything we learn at uni pretty well as well, it's very focused on outcomes and and putting information in. There's not a lot of trust in the implicit inherent intelligence of the individual in front of you and especially when you're talking about autism. We have this brain deficit thing. It's We are inculcated with it. And so if you don't take that out first and unlearn that, you're, you don't get very far because the person in front of you knows you're still trying to fix them and they know that you're still trying to um, career them somewhere. And so I think the artfulness in that sense of what I do is I don't care. I, people find me a bit difficult because I, um, I don't think they find me difficult. I'm just different. I, I don't look very professional. I don't 
act in a sense very professional in, in the sense of I don't do it top down. I, each person comes in and they're different and we, I just go, especially with the older ones, I go, it's pretty reasonable you don't want to be here. So let me, you know, show you what I, what I think this is. But I have to, you have to really engage psychologically with the person first. And I, so I'm overemphasizing it because it, because it matters so much. And if you don't do that, you haven't got them. And then, as I said, I, I, I have, I'll, ex, I'll show them in different ways, different exercises I do. So the, the ball one I just said is, it's just a fit ball, a, you know, a big gym ball. And it's really squishy, so it's not hard and it's not exercise. It's more like a pussycat on a fat belly. And you lie on the ground and you put your feet on it and you press. And I, you know, add a few bits in and around so that you give the brain time to learn and calibrate emotion and it gets to reset. But it's pretty easy, but but it's just very sophisticated easy because you're playing with the body's innate intelligence, you know, and it's very much that stuff that Annette Banyel talks about and she's amazing and that's, you know, why I put her stuff in my book because it's that there was a really good woman too when I was 20 called, um, oh, my God, now I've forgotten her name, um, Stephanie Burns, and and she was talking about brain plasticity and it was very much how, in, how hugely um sophisticated the brain is and you don't have to tell it a lot you give it a little bit of information and then you go away and go tick 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 by itself so so i always leave enough space there for um for that to happen so you do a bit of movement and then you stop and trying to teach someone who's been in a were for a whole lifetime no matter how old they are to be still is really hard so unless you make it make sense to them unless they actually want to do it and get what that is, they won't do it anyway. So I, I have all these tools and I just make them like the ball thing. Um, I, I increasingly add in more sophistication once they can get that bit. But the first thing is just actually learning a centre point in the body because they don't, they sit right outside of their body and they're here in the body, you know, the body's here, they're there. And it's a very, very unusual experience to come back and sit in your body. And then it's quite nice. And I have people go, oh, my God, I've got peripheral vision. Because when they're in and they're down, the eyes shift and they start rolling and dilating differently. And and they have to calibrate all of that because it's all very new. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very slow. It's very gentle. And then people make cubbies and <laughs> we eat biscuits and have fun because they have to be safe. It's always about coming back to that point because you can't learn if you don't feel safe. Is there a lot of talking in the sessions or is it is it mainly movement-based or...? It's very um, particular to the person. I, I, it's not structured. I, every session's different. So some people do a lot of talking and, and we work with that. You know, I've got one girl that comes in in her 20s and she tells me all her macabre Japanese movies that she watches and we chat the whole time and we do our stuff. Um, other people make cubbies and they'll stick one hand out while I do some um, sort of in a funny way just reflexology points with them but it's teaching them how to read sensory information with their body but they're in a cubby and you know I've got a hand or a leg out um, or it's everything in between so it's and I think that's really different too for a lot of people who've learnt 
you know, you go through a program with your client or you do these steps to actually not be in charge is you have to unlearn that. We're not used to not being in charge. I don't see, I see myself as a facilitator uh, I'm, and and very much the same as the person in front of me. I, I really do think, I consider myself on the spectrum anyway, but, but I think we are all the same. We all have a body. We, you know, if you go into grief or shock, you your whole body shuts down and you can't take information in properly and you, you can't eat properly. And so we all actually know what it feels like to not be able to think very clearly when things don't feel good. So it's more really recognizing the sameness with your client and then hanging out really till till they learn a little bit and you, you just facilitate progress in that way mm. with lots of positive reinforcement. Yeah. And so some kids obviously don't, you know, there are some kids that will look like they're always in an anxious state. They're living um, constantly on the edge. They're just waiting for that next hit to sort of tip them over and they're in a sensory meltdown or, um, you know, something hasn't gone right. It might be a transition or something. But obviously they can, it sounds like they can be in this shutdown mode um, when when they don't appear to be anxious or, or anything like that. It's just because... Um, you know, they've got other behaviours like they're not communicating or they're not playing or whatever it is. Mm. Yeah, I mean, everyone's very individual with that. But, you you know, people can get quite hyper, but it doesn't mean that they're, a lot of their system isn't still quite depressed, you know. You can still not have access to how your eyes are operating or your the sensitivity of your ears and things, even if you're, bouncing around and similarly when you really shut down it, it it's I think I got a bit lost with your question so I'm, I'm trying to no that's all right um, I, basically I suppose when you see kids who are um, in that shutdown mode parents will see them and they'll be under the table in that real you can see the physical shutdown mode but you're sort of saying that autism most kids may be in this shutdown mode but you can't actually physically sort of see it all the time they're not going to be hiding under a table or having a sensory meltdown you know that's that's a big red flag warning sign that they're in this fight flight freeze you know shut down mode but see yeah i would argue that people on the spectrum are always in that state so so they're not they don't really know the parasympathetic state that's kind of what you have to teach so so you, you know I draw sort of a sliding scale and the, and the parasympathetics at the top, flight of fights in the middle, immobilizers down the bottom. People on the spectrum hang out at those two last ones and they really don't know what the other state is. So mm. on a good day, um, they're, they're in red alert mode. That's kind of their norm. And then anything on top of that slides them into this total shutdown. And, a, and a, an immobilized state can be a disassociated state. So it doesn't mean you lie down and, you know, look like you're necessarily immobilized. You might disassociate and then have a massive anger fit and all of that stuff that can happen and you can't remember what you've done. You disassociate. But People, you know, you, t- you talk to, especially girls on the spectrum, I think this is very relevant, they they say, you know, I know I look fine, but I'm not. You know, they can, you know, I think I think women have um, probably, you know, a more sophisticated nervous system. So I think they can override stuff quite well and, and manage. But it takes a huge amount of energy. 
So by the end of the day, they're absolutely exhausted and can't function and can't go out and see friends and can't clean the house and barely look after their families. And um, But to the world, they look like they're managing just fine. And I think it's in schools really difficult for boys and girls because teachers can't see what's happening necessarily and then they just read the behaviour as bad. And it's why I really like doing school PDs because I go, this is actually what it feels like 24-7 for these people. They're always in this state. They can't take much more. So, yes, we have to do soothing stuff. We do have to remember to give them a lot of leeway and read those behaviours with more grace because the nicer you are and the more understanding you are, people will um, come back online more easily but it's very hard especially with old school thinkers to to see that isn't it Mm, mm, yeah absolutely I think that was very well said and I think you covered what I was trying to get out in my question that's great um I wanted to jump to neuroplasticity because you were speaking about Anat Baniel um a little bit earlier so I know this forms this theory forms part of your ART program. So, what is neuroplasticity, and um, how, how does movement help rewire and reorganize the brain? Neuroplasticity or brain plasticity is it's such an odd word. So people find it it's like polyvagal. People go, "What?" It just doesn't you know until you get it. But it's just the brain's ability to rewire and and grow and change at any age. And we used to think that the brain was more plastic up to about seven. But what we're realising is that it is actually a, a, a whole lifetime experience where the brain's actually got this huge capacity to upgrade. Our brain's very quantum. It's, you know, we've, we're slowly shifting from a very mechanical understanding of it to realising it's just this fluid, constantly updating, upgrading kind of system. So... So we do that and then, and it's why I like Annette Baniel's work so much because everyone else, people are slowly getting there because we've had such a, especially Western mindset of the brain's the most important thing. We say brain plasticity is about the brain, um, but but it isn't because the brain doesn't exist all by itself, you know, in a glass jar like in Futurama or something. You've got a body attached and the it's everything's bi-directional you've got information coming up and down you know the body the body informs the brain so much more than we give it credit for 80% of our sensory information is actually read in the gut and then it, it's just it's sort of almost like the vagus nerve and the spinal cord read whether there's danger it reads what's going on and they send information up to the brain and then the brain decides what to do so there's this constant interplay going on with messages and, and um, you know, 90% of us is autonomic, which means 90% of us happens without our conscious control. Everything's, all this chitter-chat is happening all of the time. And so we, because, because we like the brain so much, we, we kind of disregard all of that. Whereas you, as we were saying earlier, you get locked in a body state you can't think your way out of that if all of that's going on. If, if if all you know is that, someone telling you to be different and telling you to calm down, it's like, well, what does that mean? Because the whole body has an understanding of who and what you are, you know. It's, it's, a, it's a full system. So movement allows a new recognition of self. It allows you to unlock a kind of a locked pattern 
Um, it changes the um, blood flow to the brain. We just found out recently that the immune system is in the brain, 80% in the gut, and then we've also now found out a year or so ago that actually it's in the brain. So there's this huge connection. But also we've just found out that the lymph system via the cerebral spinal fluid, which is controlled by the vagus nerve via cranial nerves, cleans the brain. So you're talking about the lymph system. That's the body. So if you have that in a seized state all of the time, how much um, uh, information flow, good blood flow, cleaning, connection to self can actually happen? You soften the body state. You do it safely. You, you are, you're allowing all sorts of really um, necessary um body flow and movement to come in, which has to affect your mental state and your capacity to be in the world. Mm. It, it just does. Mm, and it does. Sorry, let me say yeah, this because it's yeah, fun. Go for what it. I find is, like with what I said with the ball exercise and the mums, we do this exercise, it's a whole body exercise, and then you sit up and your head's quite, quite clear and I think it's actually – drained the brain as much as anything and stopped all of those information panic going up to the brain because people look 10 years younger and they just go, oh, my God, I feel great. So it, it's that, except people on the spectrum, you can't necessarily even do that with them to start with because it's overwhelming because they've never, ever felt it. So you have to go very gently because you can't, you can't just shift people to a new state um, without them. Mm. Um, being able to catch up kind of thing. Mm. Yeah, I totally agree. I think, um, you know, the brain is connected to the body and what happens in the brain, there's a flow-on effect and it's not an isolated island. You know, we need to look at a multi-systems perspective of autism, I suppose. Um, And I do, like in your book, Reframe, you're thinking about autism, um, you Mm -hmm. talk about it, it not so much the type of movement that kids should be doing, but it's how the movements should be done. Did you want to touch on that a little bit in terms of slow and um, intentional, those sorts of things? Yeah, I mean, it, it's very much – Annette Banyol, which is, you know, I put the nine essentials in there because she articulates that stuff so well. Um, and so it's it's worth looking at, at that for those reasons. It's I, I just I guess I in practical terms again I'd go back to if you if you are too disciplined even about being open or aware or slow you lose the kid as well. <laughs> so you always have to make it really accessible for them and fun and not mind if you don't achieve anything in a day because because they have to want to learn and they have to want to listen um so it's 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 always finding a way to make it meaningful for them and so in a sense like i'll do the ball exercise with a kid once if they can and then i might go go really fast just go hell for leather go really fast and then go really slow and then go really fast again so that the first step is just actually um engaging with it and getting engaging with their body 
But that's not actually about listening. I'm actually getting them to a point where they can listen. And then some of them go, well, I'm not doing that. I need to count. And I'll go, great, count to 20. And then that makes sense. And they can they can be in charge and be empowered with it. And then I, I, you can't really introduce listening to the body till we start working out you've got one. So it's 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 a little prior to that in a sense of um, uh, finding ways to get them to be slow enough, and, and and then it's can you be still and close your eyes and and let your brain go and do that noticing. So I guess what I'm saying is it's not none of it's a very intellectual exercise. You, I'm not asking them to think slow. I'm not asking them to have awareness. I'm not languaging it at all for them. I'm simply making enough space and enough curiosity so that that can be enabled. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. It, it does. Um, it, it's so interesting. I find it so fascinating, the work that you're doing. Um, another theory that you talk about is the interoception and that's weaved into your program as well. So before we get into sort of the nuts and bolts of your program, um, can we talk about interoception? Because, you know, as an occupational therapist, this it's one of our senses and we have eight senses and this is a hidden sense. We can't see it like we can see our eyes or our nose or our ears. We, we, we don't see it. So we don't, a lot of us don't know it's there. And even a lot of therapists don't even know we have this sense. Can you talk a bit about what it is and how you use this theory in your program? So interoception is your ability to um, read your internal states. So it's when you know you need to go to the toilet or when you're hungry or when you're hot or cold or how hot, fast your heart's racing or you know, even whether you feel good inside. Um, people on the spectrum often don't know any of those things. I have people, and they it's quite common, it's just I think people don't bother to ask, they can't feel their bones. They're not there. Their body's literally not there. If you go back to the lion model, um, the, the vagus nerve will switch off feeling. You don't want to feel that lion but chewing your leg off. It gets switched off. So, so more or less, people on the spectrum have had that function switched off and they can't feel. So I had a lady in her 40s come after three sessions and say, I was eating an apple the other day and I went to have my second one because I usually have three or four because one's never enough. But I realized I was full and I've never experienced that before. So it, it's, it's this natural sense of knowing what, what's what inside you, except that if you haven't had it, you don't know it's there. And you can't really teach it, again, intellectually at all. So it, it explains why people don't know whether to go to the toilet. It explains, you know, why people are still in nappies in primary school and stuff. Um, and it's not their fault. They just really don't know what – they're just not in their body at all. So, so again, I just – I find – I don't really work on – toileting or eating or anything like with that lady we didn't work on it we just did some very gentle sensory stuff to start waking her body up and it followed suit because that's what it wants to do you know we, we've got a capacity to be in all of those states we don't want to just get stuck in one of them and the goal for me is not always to be in a happy state but have a facility to move fluidly between all of them or not really go down to the last one because it's you know it's it's a place it's an extreme place 
you don't want to live there too often. I think some people do. So, um, so I I teach it via I guess the way I was talking before with with um, giving the making people feel safe enough that they're curious enough that we can let their brain and body have some time to chat. And and what you do is you find that the the brain starts going to find the body again and it does and it starts making a better 3d picture in the brain and it starts knowing itself and and movement is easier and posture is easier because everything's in a more fluid state but i had a my chat yesterday um with skype from seattle and he went he got really quiet he gets really quiet he's he doesn't talk a lot but he's talking a lot more but he went i can feel the bone in my leg and it, it's profound and you just wait and listen while he processes that and it's profound but then at the same time i get i get emails from his mum going he's doing all of this at, at, at college things are going so much better he's talking more he's you know all of this other stuff starts to unravel and blossom while he's very quietly finding his leg bone because because how hard is it to live in a body, especially especially for men, I think, they're supposed to be able to respond and tell their bodies what to do to fight and defend and, you know, and just be embodied. And if you don't have one, it's very unnerving, isn't it? And you don't you're not resilient particularly. Mm. I'm so curious. What could could you give us some ideas of some of the exercises you gave this particular man that you're talking about? Um, so he had that sense of body awareness, just so we can get a bit more of a visual of what sorts of strategies you might be implementing. I did an intensive with him in Seattle. I was in the US a few months ago, and he that his mum's actually on one of my testimonials it's quite good fun but she um he came to my workshop and I'll go back to this again just to stress it he came to my workshop and he barely spoke his hands very shaky his body is not um has not been strong very weak hands very um uh, not a lot of sort of strength in them, and pe- people often have quite clawed hands. It's somewhat, you know, it's a, it's an automatic response to go into flight or fight state. So people are often like this all the time. Um, but he, I could see his eyes were twinkling by the end of the day. So I was really excited that I'd made sense to him. And he went home and said to his mum, "Oh my God, this makes sense. Nothing else has done this for me." So he came and did a week intensive. All we did for that week, all we could do, because his body was so. Um, um, fragile. I couldn't do that ball thing with him. It would have overwhelmed him. All we did was um, a, a sort of a technique I've worked out um, to do with reflexology because I found all of these points on the hand relate to the cranial nerves. Um, and I, I found it out because I went looking for something because I had a guy in a wheelchair at one of my... Um, workshops for people who work with disability so I couldn't do my gross motor stuff with him so I went to find something else and then I practiced on everyone I could find and it does it drops your state like anything it's fascinating um in a certain you have to do it in a certain way but at the end of this workshop this guy in the wheelchair goes 
I know it's going to sound really funny, but I've got tingling in my feet and I haven't felt that for 20 years. He was so blown away. Everyone was in tears because they all work together and they're lovely. But it was quite amazing. But, again, it's not a miracle. It's just the vagus nerve will depress um, information flow up and down the body. So for this guy, all I did was this. And that even just these points, sending information up the body, I think, down to the gut. It gets assessed in the gut, then it goes back up. And the body sort of going, great, give me some sensory information, let me work it out, was huge for him. It was huge. Um, Was he defensive to touch or anything prior to that? Well, no, because he had chosen to work with me. So I go very gently and I go, look, this is what I want to do. We're going to try it. If it doesn't feel nice, we stop. We, you know, we... We, we go really slow. We really listen. Um, we had to go really slow because he doesn't talk a lot and he takes a long time to process and, and he was intrigued. So we just, we would do a bit and then we'd be really slow. And, and again, you can't have an agenda because he, it's his agenda. So we did that over the week, but the, the they came in every evening. The next time they came in, his mum went, he woke up, so like after the first session, and we probably didn't even get through all of the fingers. We don't do both hands. It's just one hand um, and a few other points. Um, she said he's, he woke up in the morning and he looked like a little boy does with a really squishy face, and he's never looked like that in his whole life, and he's, he's 17. It was just beautiful. So it's like... <sighs> His body felt better and then it started to warm up. He started, even that first day, she said he just started talking. He started talking to me. It's like I can find, I'm, I'm finding out who he is for the first time because his body started to, I don't know, to melt or soften or allow him to come through or I don't know, you know, that's probably a bit weird language, but um, he... He just started to feel better. So he just, we just did that. That's all we did all week. He couldn't, like, he, that was, oh, like, as absolutely much as he could manage just to get used to these points. And each day he would get better at coping with the sensation. And so you go, look how clever your body is. It's, it's worked out how to do this. It's taken that little tiny, tiny piece of information and made sense of it. And, and now it can take a little tiny bit more. So you just give it a little tiny bit more. Um, and now we do the ball exercise. We, we've just introduced another one, which is a, it's, it's, it's not a hugely innovative exercise, but it's just sort of um, bending the whole body and then lying down again. But it's enough information of, of, the, of a larger order for then the brain to go tick, tick, ticking around the body and, and go find it. So, and that's when, you know, we've done that for a couple of weeks and he's um, got bones coming. Wow. <laughs> so it's, it, so it's it really subtle. It I mean, this, oh, let me say this because I think it's really important. People go, well, you don't do much. I was you know, going to say it so sounds to some parents it will sound so simple. You know, you're touching a few points on their fingers and getting them to bend down and do movements. But it is, like you said, for these kids, they have such a reduced sense of body awareness or no awareness of their body at all. Um, so to get them to be mindful and um, present while they do movements like this, 
um, I think can make so much difference. If you if your focus is on um, an outcome because you really need them to tie their shoelaces or do something, that's what they're doing. There's no actual learning. There's no interoception able to take place. It is a highly sophisticated thing to read your internal state. Your brain needs the space to do that. It can't do anything else. And because they're already in a heightened, heightened state and very busy, they really can't do anything else. And I think, which is again why I really overemphasize the other stuff, you have to teach the parents just how hammered their system is all of the time to start with. So it's actually quicker to go five steps back and do it this way. But it, it's the unlearning part. It doesn't make sense to people at no, all. So no, I have because to- parents would, you know, usually therapy and as an occupational therapist, we ask parents, you know, what their goals are and what they want to work on. And as you said, it could be shoelaces. That's a big issue. And, you know, I, I... I think I do incorporate some techniques in terms of the movement and um, body awareness, um, but obviously we do address it at a very functional level too and um, and we have that goal in mind. But I think sometimes the we need to um, sort of just look at them where their development is and um, just provide them with the tools and the resources so they can get there naturally. Like they, they will get there, but we've just got to give the body the tools and the resources so um, the the outcome's almost spontaneous, you know, yeah. Exactly, exactly. It's really hard to get your head around it, but, but it, people want to be able to tie their shoelaces. Now I've got the guy I work with with pandas, when I first started working with him, he's in his 20s. He's got autism as well, but he could speak earlier. He doesn't wear clothes, so he didn't when we started because his body's in so much pain all of the time. Um, and then he slowly, and this is all we've been doing, and he, this hand thing, he loves it. He like he just puts his hand out and goes, you know, yay, you're here. He, he would start doing things like no one could get him out of the bath for hours because he would run his hands in the water if I come to the door he's up and out straight away in the room going let's go and I've just taught all his staff to do it and one of his lovely lovely staff um quite she knew what she was asking and it's the same thing that you are because of what you learn in OT she's an OT she said can we use this stuff to get him to do stuff and I went absolutely not you know because the goal isn't to get him to do stuff the goal is that he feels better, that he knows what that feels like, that he can learn to settle his system as he goes. What he did, though, was start spontaneously wearing clothes, putting his shoes and socks on, going to the front door and wanting to go out. So he spontaneously, people want to have a life. They, you know, they can't because they're stuck in this system. You, you drop the system down, you get them reconnected and safe. You know, this, this girl... I worked with her for a year on a project, not in my work, when I worked for Autism Services, and I I had three people for a year, and we had to see what we could produce in these quite challenged clients, and she, no one could get her to do anything. She wouldn't bake cookies, she wouldn't go out, she she had um, epilepsy and Asperger's, and it it was really tough. And I, you know, I tried lots of ways and sent a psychologist to see if we could help her feel better. But 
the the psychologist that had her when I started doing this full time sent her back to me because because it didn't work. It, it kind of couldn't crack her, and she was very defensive. And um, she started working with me, and I had to say, look, I know you think this is rubbish, and I, you know, fine. Give me ten sessions, and if I um, don't do any good for you, I'll give you money back because because I think it will be useful to you. Um, so she stayed. But she, in a very short space of time, going from being really nervous, would kick her mum out of the office and go, I need some space. Her mum had to stay up every night normally and put her to bed and do a hand cream. She's in her 20s. Um, she does her own hand cream, puts herself to bed, showers herself, joined a Japanese class, baked cookies for the Japanese class and went to the Christmas party before she'd met anyone and went on her own. And we didn't work on any of that. She just felt better. And so she blossomed. And how do you know what a tree is going to look like? It's <laughs> You don't. You water it. It's a really different model. And that's why the unlearning part is so massive because we're not used to thinking like this at all. I love it. I absolutely love it. I think we've spoken a lot about the sort of techniques you use in your ART autism reframe technique, but is there anything else you want to tell us about the program? It is actually really easy when you get your head around it. Like I teach parents really simply once they get it, you know, and then they're off and running. I really like to give people stuff to do at home. I like like the mum and kids to bond really well. Or the opposite, as people get older, you know, you can have a 20-year-old who's kind of been stuck being a 12-year-old because she doesn't feel great. They emancipate and they start living their own life. So uh, you, you, you just give, I give people as much space to, to be empowered to do it themselves as, as quickly as possible because it's your body you know best and your, what, what you want is to... I don't really want people dependent on me to make them feel better. I just want them to know how to feel better by themselves. And you can use all sorts of tools, but if your body is the tool, you can take it anywhere. It doesn't matter if you accidentally leave it at home because you don't. And it's that. So there's this huge facility and resilience that starts growing as the body starts feeling better, but it's yours. And and it's at any age, which I think I think that's the most fascinating thing that I'm doing. I'm working with people in their 40s, and they feel so much better and happier and blossom and and just get on with their lives. And we don't really understand that that's possible yet. It's fascinating. Fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Let's head to our five rapid fire questions now. Alrighty, so number one, what is one habit that parents can implement today? To take a step back and just uh, start to appreciate behaviours from um, from an understanding that the person's doing the best that they can all the time, even if it doesn't look like it. Awesome. And it's easier said than done. <laughs> I'm a parent, but yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Love it. Number two, what do people never ask you that you wish they did? People ask me really interesting questions because they're fascinated and they go, this makes so much sense. So I don't actually have anything they don't ask me. It's always quite good fun. That's great. That's great. 
Um, number three, what book would you recommend that all parents read? Reframe your thinking around autism. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's very easy to read. <laughs> it is. It is very easy to read. It's thin. It's um, it's put in very layman's terms so you, anyone can pick it up and read it and understand it. Um, number four, what is one of your top three unfinished bucket list items? My huge bucket list item is I want to grow a forest in the wheat belt um, under the guidance of this guy, David Kennett from Aurea. He grows trees. Um, it's a bit like Findhorn in Scotland. He, he plants trees in summer. He divines where they need to live on his property. He plants them in summer. He waters them once. And all these trees grow. So I want to build a world-owned community forest in the wheat belt, like salt. <laughs> oh, you are so fascinating, Holly. Absolutely fascinating. How long has that dream been in there? Probably since I'm, well, not long after I met him, but probably three or four years. So I play around with it and I'm too busy now. But I won't be. And if I, you know, I'll, I'll get some space and I'll get some, you know, funds at some point and then crowdfund this thing. So it's fun, you know, but yeah. but it shows people again what's possible. Community. And we, you know, lots of things are possible. Anything's possible. Anything yeah. is possible. There's possibilities everywhere. Last one, number five, if you could only offer one piece of advice to parents, what would it be? Be really kind to yourself um, because the, because you have a nervous system. You, If you give yourself grace and you're nice to yourself, you, uh, you feel better, you come from a better place, but you also um, can then give that to your children and you can role model it for them. And, again, it's easier said than done, but I, I think especially mothers don't um, don't value doing that so much because there's always so much else to do, but it actually is really useful and, um, and I think being kind to yourself is quite underrated. Mm, yeah, I think we definitely put it on the back burner and particularly mm. – with kids on the spectrum we you know parents want to make sure that they have all the possibilities of um success in their life i suppose so yes yeah, so so crucially important comes back to the put the airplane oxygen mask on yourself before you go helping others doesn't it absolutely and we're, we're social creatures and we read off each other so if you're exuding calm and trust and and faith in in the whole journey you you um you elicit that and develop that in your family it's um it's it's quite a nice thing to be able to do mm. yeah awesome well how can our listeners find out more about you where could they find a copy of your books and um do you do any uh shows you know um conferences or talks or speaking events around australia I people can find me at www.zebr.co um, or holly at zebr.co um, or just type in Holly Bridges Autism. You'll find me on on Google, Google these days, um, and type in Holly Bridges Autism YouTube because I've got heaps of testimonials and podcasts on there, and they're quite fun. Um, 
so uh, that's probably the easiest way to find me. The book's um, published by a London publisher, Jessica Kingsley, and it's been out for about three years now. So that's everywhere online, um, and you can ask your bookstore to get it in. Um, and then, yes, I'm I'm doing – I haven't got anything lined up yet. I'm going back to the US in March and then to the UK to do some work. Um, I – I do a lot of Skype, so people can do an introductory session and things like that over Skype and learn about that. I have yet to properly set up webinars. <laughs> I find them technologically challenging, so I've just sidestepped it, but I will. Um, and um, probably when I get back, oh, in June we're doing an adult, in Perth we're doing an adult autism seminar. Um, very much focused on training the police and um, other services about people with autism and how to read it and how to understand it so that there's more um, uh, there's more thought in the work and, and understanding in the community. So I'm very available to travel and I love talking about this as you can probably gather. Yeah. Uh, excellent. Well, thank you so much. I, I really love your perspective on it all and I'm so glad that you brought this book into the world um, and I think everyone should grab a copy because it does, it really highlights everything that you spoke about today and it's, it's I think it's almost something that to get your head around it, you have to go back through it a few times. Like even this podcast, I'm going to have to go back through and listen and pause and take it in because it is it is such a different concept and we do need to be open to unlearning. We're, we're very, we're very good at being programmed to learn and constantly be bombarded with all this new information, but we're not taught how to unlearn that and um, be accepting of different approaches and techniques that can obviously be very useful and helpful um, and beneficial to children with autism. So, thank you so much for being here today with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's so lovely to um, have someone so interested. I, I yeah, it's very grateful. It's lovely. Thanks. Cheers, Holly. I'll talk to you later. See ya. Bye. Thanks, guys, for listening. I really hope you got some value out of today's conversation. Now, I would love to connect with you. I am really active over on Instagram and Facebook, so I'd love it if you came over and you said hi. All you have to do is search Homebase Hope and you will find me there. Now, if you don't know already, I am a lover of essential oils and a doTERRA wellness advocate. I really believe in the value of essential oils. And if this is something that you would like to explore and learn how you can use them in your family's life, then please get in touch. I would love to connect with you. And also, if you head over to Homebase Hope website, so that's homebasehope.com.au, I have created lots of visuals and social stories. So visuals in terms of first then, choice boards, visual schedules for toileting, getting ready in the morning. I've done all the hard work for you. Um, these are printables that are available on the, on the website so you can access today. Finally, if you love this fortnightly injection of information, please subscribe to the podcast. All you have to do is head to iTunes and hit the subscribe button and every fortnight you will get an instant notification of the latest interview. If you do like the show, please jump on iTunes and leave a five-star review so more people can discover this podcast and so we can inspire positive change for more people living on the spectrum. You can access all of the show notes and other episodes at homebasehope.com.au 
And until next time, guys, I encourage you to open your mind, respect the differences, and above all, believe that you can make a difference from home base. See you soon, guys. This year, the Wellness Summit returns. The only lesson is ever going to be your learning. That's it. As long as you're learning, that's your lesson. When you stand in front of the mirror, the talk, the things that go on between these ears in the morning can also be what sets you up for a day. And if you've beaten yourself up for not being the most extraordinary person that you can be, then start now. We make it hard for ourselves. We make things difficult for ourselves because we go and apply a whole bunch of stories and a whole bunch of drama and a whole bunch of I'm not good enough to the things that occur in our lives. Wake the heck up. Today is a new day. And here's where it can change. Kim Morrison and Karen Smith feature at the 2018 Wellness Summit. Bigger and better than ever. Tickets on sale Friday, May 4 at thewellnesssummit.com. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.